Hello, so this is uh, part two of chapter three. In the first part, we spent some time talking about the principle of mediocrity and this idea that the earth is here to sustain us. It's specially suited, uh, we are specially suited to it, and this has the idea of spaceship earth. This is named the idea of spaceship earth. And I finished by saying that um, David had written, today, almost the entire capacity of the earth's life support system for humans has been provided not for us, but by us, using our ability to create new knowledge. And he makes the point that whilst other organisms appear to be specially suited to the earth, this is kind of a misreading of the situation in at least one respect. They're suited to the environment as it happens to be now. But the purpose of biological evolution is to sustain genes over time, not any particular individual species. It's um, survival of the fittest genes in a very real sense. And so the Earth is not going to sustain organisms, um, collections of genes. So let me continue reading um, chapter three. And he's speaking about other organisms on the planet. He says, their home environments do have the appearance of having been designed as life support systems for them, albeit only in a desperately limited sense that I have described. But the biosphere no more provides humans with a life support system than it provides us with radio telescopes. So the biosphere is incapable of supporting human life. From the outset, it was only human knowledge that made the planet even marginally habitable by humans. And the enormously increased capacity of our life support system since then, in terms both of numbers and of security and quality of life, has been entirely due to the creation of human knowledge. We will see, this is me speaking now, this is not a quote, we will see that as we proceed through the book, David speaks, returns to this thing and speaks about these wonderful examples such as Malthusian, named after Thomas Malthus, these Malthusian pessimistic prophecies. This idea that the carrying capacity of the planet is finite for humans. Carrying capacity works quite well if you're considering any other isolated organism, but those isolated organisms in the environment are not creating knowledge. That is a such a crucial point to grapple with. It's something that people who are concerned about the environment don't consider in their calculations. And it's very difficult to consider these things in calculations because the growth of knowledge is inherently unpredictable. So when Thomas Malthus, as we will see in later chapters, tries to predict how long people can survive on this planet, given that the amount of land where we can grow food is finite, he doesn't realize that things can be done and things are coming post Thomas Malthus, who was around in the 1700s, in particular in the 1900s. Technology was found, namely artificial fertilizers via this thing called the Harbour process, where you take nitrogen gas and you take hydrogen gas and you can make ammonia out of it. And the ammonia can then be used to create artificial fertilizers put into the soil, which remarkably I heard recently, some people regard as a, a, a terrible evil because some of the fertilizer might go into rivers and cause algae to bloom. 
And so algae bloom is a terrible evil, so we should stop using artificial fertilizers. If we did that, a vast number of people on this planet would die of starvation. People now are not starving in the numbers that they used to because of artificial fertilizers, because we now have the knowledge of how to create more food with the same amount of land than we ever have before. There's something different about us. We are not subject to the same sort of whimsical changes in the environment that other organisms are. Other organisms, if the environment changes, they may go extinct. Now, if the environment changes too much and too quickly for us, we will go extinct. That's why we have to create knowledge as fast as we possibly can. Having created it, we should use it to create technology, which helps to sustain us, to provide us with a spaceship Earth. That's the only thing that provides the spaceship Earth is our building of it, our engineering of the planet, in order that it's more friendly for us. So let me continue reading. On the same theme, David writes, the moral component of the spaceship Earth metaphor is therefore somewhat paradoxical. It casts humans as ungrateful for the gifts which in reality they never received. And it casts all other species in morally positive roles in the spaceship's life support system with humans as the only negative actors. We get this sense in our culture that humans are forever damaging the planet, that we are the cause of extinctions. I don't know how long it's been since there's been a natural extinction, according to the prevailing conception of what's going on in ecology. We know that 99.999% of species that have ever existed have gone extinct. But over the last 50 years, we hear about extinctions all the time, but simultaneously, in all cases, this is a challenge I'll throw out there. We've never heard of a species that's gone extinct naturally. Why is that? We know that they do, but they apparently don't anymore. Ever since humans have arrived on the scene, we're the only things that cause extinctions, more or less. So we are, a, on this view, uniquely evil species. And yet, Coming, this comes from the spaceship Earth idea and the, the, the surrounding philosophy. Yet the fact is that we're doing what we can to not suffer the same fate as every other species that's ever gone extinct. And the only thing that we can do is to try and mould the environment around us using our knowledge and technology. I'll continue reading. But humans are part of the biosphere and the supposedly immoral behaviour is identical to what all other species do when times are good except that humans alone try to mitigate the effect of that response on their descendants and other, other species. The principle of mediocrity is paradoxical too, since it singles out anthropocentrism for special opprobrium among all forms of parochial misconception. It is itself anthropocentric. Also, it claims that all value judgments are anthropocentric, yet itself is often expressed in value-laden terminology such as arrogance, just scum, and the very word, mediocrity. With respect to whose values are those disparagements to be understood? Why is arrogance even relevant as a criticism? Also, even if holding an arrogant opinion is morally wrong, morality is supposed to refer only to the internal organization of the chemical scum. So how can it tell us anything about how the word world beyond the scum is organized? 
as the principle of mediocrity purports to. This was very David Deutsch, by the way, um, this idea that the principle of mediocrity singles out anthropocentrism and that itself is anthropocentric. So taking one misconception and explaining how another misconception comports to it. I'll continue. Um, he, he's speaking about um, people in the past and he says that in a sense, their whole problem was that they were not arrogant enough. They assumed, these primitive people, far too easily that the world was fundamentally incomprehensible to them. The misconception that there was once an unproblematic era for humans is present in ancient myths of a past golden age and of a garden of Eden. The theological notions of grace, unearned benefit from God, and providence, which is God regarded as the provider of human needs, are also related to this. In order to connect the supposed unproblematic past with their own less than pleasant experiences, the authors of such myths had to include some past transition, such as a fall from grace when providence reduced its level of support. In the spaceship Earth metaphor, the fall from grace is usually deemed to be imminent or under. Yes, so this idea of an unproblematic past. Um, it has a lot of modern variants uh, beyond what David is speaking about now, but all sit under the same umbrella. There's a lot of health fads like this. If anyone's ever heard of the paleo diet, this idea that we should eat like people of the Paleolithic era. And so just eat grains and meats. I think the theory there is that everyone on the entire planet, no matter where they happen to be located, were eating roughly the same things. Anyway, it's the idea that unrefined food of some sort or other is better for you than anything that has been processed in any way whatsoever. So it's nutrition in the form of the past was definitely better. So it's nutrition in the form of grace and providence, I suppose. Um, now, there might very well be a case to be made that certain kinds of unrefined food are going to be better than certain kinds of food. But that's a vacuous statement, basically. You take any two foods, one's going to be superior. Sometimes it will be the refined food. Um, if you take a carrot, firstly, um, the orange carrots are genetically engineered. Um, well, they've been selectively bred. But two, as far as I know, if you eat the raw carrot, then that's not going to provide you as, with as much nutrition as having cooked the carrot. And having cooked the carrot is a rather unnatural thing to do. I'm not sure if um, Paleolithic people uh, cooked carrots. I don't know. Whatever the case, cooking is unnatural. Using a microwave in order to process your food is unnatural. Um, and yet, we know that um, if you break down the cell walls of plants um, through mechanisms other than simply chewing them, namely by applying heat, which partially digests the food outside of your stomach, then you're able to extract more of the nutrients. All this is to say is that technology and knowledge helps. Let's continue. The principle of mediocrity contains a similar misconception. Consider the following argument, which is due to the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Human attributes, like those of other organisms, evolved under natural selection in an ancestral environment. That is why our senses are adapted to detecting things like the colors and smell of fruit or the sound of a predator being able to detect such things gave our ancestors a better chance of surviving to have offspring. But for the same reason, Dawkins points out, evolution did not waste our resources on detecting phenomena that were never relevant to our survival. We cannot, for instance, distinguish between the colors of most stars with the naked eye 
Our night vision is too poor and monochromatic because not enough of our ancestors died of that limitation to create evolutionary pressure for anything better. So Dawkins argues, and here he is invoking the principle of mediocrity, that there is no reason to expect our brains to be any different from our eyes in this regard. They evolved to cope with the narrow class of phenomena that commonly occur in the biosphere on approximately human scales of size, time and energy and so on. So phenomena in the universe happen to be far above or below, most phenomena in the universe happen to be far above or below those scales. Some would kill us instantly, others could never affect anything in the lives of humans. So just as our senses cannot detect neutrinos or quasars or most other significant phenomena in the cosmic scheme of things, there's no reason to expect our brains to understand them. To the extent that they already do understand them, we have been lucky. But a run of luck cannot be expected to continue for long. Hence, Dawkins agrees with our earlier evolutionary biologist, John Haldane, who expected that the universe is not only queerer than we can suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. This is a powerful argument. It's completely wrong, but it is very seductive. I think Dawkins uses the terminology middle world. We don't understand things that are really, really small, like the quantum, and so what's going on there um, kind of challenges our intuitions in such a way that it's impossible to understand quantum mechanics, let alone string theory or anything else. And we don't understand things moving too fast. So our intuitions don't really wrap around relativity theory. Anything approaching the speed of light starts to do things that make it difficult for us to understand. And okay, I'm gonna pause now and change venue. Where I got to last time was discussing Richard Dawkins' middle world. I don't think that David uses those terms, but I've heard them or read them written by Richard himself somewhere or other. This idea that our brain is an evolved structure. Of course it is. And why should we think it any different to any other feature of a biological organism? Namely, evolved in such a way that it's suited to the environment in which it finds itself. This is what evolution tends to do. It tends to shape organisms to their environment. That's why they seem so uniquely suited to those environments. So when it comes to the human brain, shouldn't we assume that exactly the same concept should obtain? That the brain is suited to the particular sizes and velocities and conditions in which it is generally surrounded by or with which it is generally surrounded by. In other words, the quantum world seems strange because we evolved in an environment which is much larger than the quantum so we don't notice quantum effects. Indeed, not only do we not notice them, we're in some sense incapable of comprehending what's going on at the subatomic scale because it's so unfamiliar. Similarly, trying to understand geological time, or cosmological time for that matter, is very, very difficult for us, perhaps even intractably so. We can't have a good understanding of what it's like to travel near the speed of light, because we never travel near the speed of light. Now, all of this is simply to say that there are limits to the human mind. We can't picture certain things, we can't even understand certain things. Perhaps people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or some others have read Richard Dawkins and taken the further leap to presume that there is no reason to suspect, I think Sam Harris might have uttered something similar, there is no reason to suspect that the brains that we have 
have the capacity to understand much more than what we know right now. This is the John Horgan, the end of science idea, in a sense. John Horgan just thinks that um, we actually are discovering everything that is possible to discover. And we're going to reach a limit in that sense. We're going to find the final theory and that's it. Progress will stop at that point. Uh, the other version of that, which often works in concert, is if there is something deeper than some of our most fundamental theories, you know, perhaps string theory lies beneath or is more fundamental than general relativity and uh, quantum theory, that we can just barely understand that. Only the greatest theoretical physicists and mathematicians are able to struggle mightily to try and figure out what's going on with string theory. That they're failing could be an indication that we have simply reached the end of human brain computing power. Whatever the laws of physics ultimately turn out to be, so this argument runs, they might be simply too complicated for us to ever possibly understand. So this is the idea of middle world. We occupy a middle-sized world. It's not, we don't occupy the largest scales like superclusters of galaxies, and we don't occupy the smallest scales like electrons and photons do. So therefore we're trapped with our brains able to comprehend human-sized things, human timescales. David is the first person here and in this chapter to really challenge that in a deep way. I think he completely cuts the legs out from underneath that entire line of argument. Persuasive as, or as compelling as, that argument is. It makes sense. It makes common sense. Why should we have any capacity to understand what it's like to travel near the speed of light? The very theories that speak about traveling near the speed of light also say how difficult it is. You need lots of energy and so forth to accelerate masses like ours to anywhere near the speed of light. So it's almost as if it's um, um, prohibited. We can't picture what's going on. Uh, we, 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 ha we struggle to bring our common sense into line with what we know from theories of physics. The faster you go, the more that time slows down. Of course, in stating the problem that way, we also reveal what's wrong with it. After all, people do understand the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity and quantum theory. Counterintuitive as they are, we understand them. And we conclude from this that our intuitions on these matters are false. There's a better way to understand reality than simply guessing at it with your common sense, with the intuitions that you grew up with as a child. You can overcome those. Now, why should we expect that if there are deeper theories still, and there must be, deeper theories than either relativity or quantum theory, which govern, and they're in conflict, and so we know at least one of them is false, probably both, that whatever the deeper theory is, why should we expect that to be any less counterintuitive? It will be counterintuitive, I would guess, but that is not to say it will be incomprehensible. In fact, it must be comprehensible because the universe is comprehensible and we can comprehend it. Now we're going to hear David's argument for exactly that. And it has to do with one of his many areas of expertise namely his understanding of computation, of universal computation. And we're going to apply that to human beings. Now, 
Last few sentences I read were this. Most phenomena in the universe happen far above or below those scales, human scales. Some would kill us instantly, others could never affect anything in the lives of early humans. So just as our sensors cannot detect neutrinos or quasars, or most other significant phenomena in the cosmic scheme of things, there's no reason to expect our brains to understand them. To the extent that they already do understand them, we have been lucky. But a run of luck cannot be expected to continue for long. So like I say, this is a very powerful, persuasive argument. It's a good argument by Dawkins, but it's false. So let's continue. David writes, that is a startling and paradoxical consequence of the principle of mediocrity. It says that all human abilities, including the distinctive ones, such as the ability to create new explanations, are necessarily parochial. That implies, in particular, that progress in science cannot exceed a certain limit defined by the biology of the human brain. And we must expect to reach that limit sooner rather than later. Beyond it, the world stops making sense, or seems to. The answer to the question that I asked at the end of chapter two, whether the scientific revolution and the broader enlightenment could be a beginning of infinity, would then be a resounding no. Science for all its successes and aspirations would turn out to be inherently parochial and ironically anthropocentric. In other words, what we discover is limited by our biological evolution, in particular by our brains. And so we can understand things at roughly human size once things start to get too big or too small, they will be incomprehensible to us, or perhaps of too long a duration or too short a duration. There could be any number of ways in which we are trapped inside of a bubble defined by the capacity of the human brain to compute what is going on out there, even if those things that are going on out there are governed by laws of physics. The laws of physics might be incomprehensible. So just to preface what's about to happen, this line of argument arises out of a mathematical proof. It's the mathematical proof that David himself did in 1986 on the universality of quantum computation, the proof that quantum computers were possible. It says that whatever the physical laws are, they must be computable. That's it. If they're computable, that means a universal computer will be able to simulate those physical laws. Now, people do object to this, but at the moment, it's a mathematical proof. Until someone can provide a refutation of the proof, it stands. It's like Pythagoras' theorem. It is like that in terms of, its, in terms of how fundamental it is. More fun. So, let's continue. Um, David speaks about how um, Richard Dawkins says that within this sort of human-sized world that is comprehensible to us, um, the world can turn out to seem unproblematic. But outside, once things get too big, too small, whatever, then there will be insoluble problems on that view. And David writes that Dawkins would prefer it to be otherwise, as he wrote. I believe that an ordinary universe, one indifferent to human preoccupations, in which everything has an explanation, even if we still have a long way to go before we find it, is a more beautiful, more wonderful place than a universe that is tricked out with capricious ad hoc magic. Now, of course, and I think David says this later, um, 
if there can be no explanation um, about some phenomena, some physical phenomena out there in the universe, if there can be an expo no explanation, then that, in fact, is a universe tricked out with capricious ad hoc magic. So Dawkins doesn't want it to be the case that there are these insoluble problems. But he's arguing against, of course, supernatural beings. He doesn't want supernatural beings uh, to exist. Like He thinks that that's a pessimistic view of the world. I would agree that um, if you've got all-powerful beings, you've got gods or whatever, then that would mean that there's magic in the universe somewhere or other. And so phenomena like miracles could exist because the gods could be doing it and you could never possibly understand it. Now, he says that that's objectionable, but it's, it's more objectionable. So let me continue. Let me continue. An orderly, explicable universe is indeed more beautiful. See chapter 14. Though the assumption that to be orderly, it has to be indifferent to human preoccupations is a misconception associated with the principle of mediocrity. Any assumption that the world is inexplicable can lead only to extremely bad explanations. For an inexplicable world is indistinguishable from one tricked out with capricious ad hoc magic by definition. No hypothesis about the world outside the bubble of explicability can be a better explanation than that Zeus rules there, or practically any myth or fantasy one likes. Skipping a little, at root the principle of mediocrity and the spaceship earth metaphor overlap in a claim about reach. They both claim that the reach of the distinctively human way of being, that is to say the way of problem solving, knowledge creating and adapting the world around us, is bounded. And they argue that its bounds cannot be very far beyond what it has already reached. Trying to go beyond that range must lead to failure and catastrophe respectively. Okay, I'm going to skip a, a fair bit here once again. <laughs> if you've never read the book, you should read it. If you haven't bought the book, you should buy it. Um, because I'm only giving you a taste of what is in any of these chapters. This one's a particularly long chapter. But I'll continue a little further on now. And he writes, Since the Enlightenment, technological progress has depended specifically on the creation of explanatory knowledge. People had dreamed for millennia of flying to the moon, but it was only with the advent of Newton's theories about the behaviour of invisible entities, such as forces and momentum, that they began to understand what was needed in order to go there. This increasingly intimate connection between explaining the world and controlling it is no accident, but is part of, a, part of the deep structure of the world. Consider the set of all conceivable transformations of physical objects. Some of these, like faster than light communication, never happen because they are forbidden by laws of nature. Some, like the formation of stars out of primordial hydrogen, happen spontaneously. And some, such as converting air and water into trees or converting raw materials into a radio telescope, are possible, but happen only when the requisite knowledge is present. For instance, embodied in genes or brains. Now, that, that, that's a, an important dichotomy. The two species of knowledge, if you like, that exist, and it's a difficult one to grapple with the first time that it is encountered, but it's true. This idea that there are two kinds of knowledge that exist on planet Earth. One, is the knowledge of how to build organisms. And that is contained within the genes of any organism. It is knowledge that is produced by selection of mutations. That's what natural selection is about. The other kind of knowledge is explanatory knowledge, which superficially resembles 
the, the production of which superficially resembles how knowledge in genes is created, but there are crucial differences. Explanatory knowledge is generated via creative conjecture and refutation. Now, in both cases, the genetic type knowledge and the explanatory type knowledge, we can state relatively cleanly what mechanisms lead to the production of both. But that doesn't mean that we know everything about them. Um, when I say that, for example, conjecture and refutation leads to the production of knowledge, or another way of putting that in more straightforward language is creativity and criticism, we don't actually know too much about creativity. In the same way, when we talk about random selection and mutation of genes that creates biological knowledge, in other words, the knowledge of how an organism can survive in a given environment, that too is not perfectly well understood. Well, nothing's perfectly well understood. But we will come to see that we know that neither of these two great theories, the theory of biological evolution and the theory of epistemology, aren't well understood because we cannot program a computer in order to simulate either. We cannot program a computer in order to simulate the capacity of creating explanatory knowledge. In order to do so, we'd have to actually create an AGI, an artificial general intelligence. We can't do that. Ergo, we do not know about how knowledge, explanatory knowledge is actually produced. It's not only explanatory knowledge, it's any kind of declarative knowledge, I suppose, uh, implicit knowledge, explicit knowledge, knowledge that people have. The other kind of knowledge, the genetic knowledge, we similarly cannot program computers in order to simulate evolution by natural selection. We can do what are called evolutionary algorithms, and we'll get to this in, in subsequent chapters, but that is nothing like, nothing like um, biological evolution. In particular, I think one of the main problems there is that in order to simulate biological evolution, you would need to simulate the environment in which the biological organism is evolving. And simulating environments has all the problems of trying to simulate with high fidelity um, the real world. Uh, so you don't only need to simulate the laws of physics, but you need to simulate emergent laws as well. Uh, and that can get uh, exceedingly difficult and the world is a complicated place. So there are many, many complications. We can't simulate either is the main bullet point there. Let's continue. So the last sentence I read was, some of those, like faster than light communication, never happen because they are forbidden by the laws of nature. Some, like the formation of stars out of primordial hydrogen, happen spontaneously. And some, such as converting air and water into trees or converting raw materials into a telescope, are possible, but happen only when the requisite knowledge is present, for instance, embodied in genes or brains. But those are the only possibilities. That is to say, every putative physical transformation to be performed in a given time with given resources or under any other conditions is either one, impossible because it is forbidden by the laws of nature or two, achievable given the right knowledge. This is the dichotomy that many, many people who've read the book are really taken aback by. Taken aback in a good way. I certainly was. It's a phenomenal claim. Uh, it's something that um, Sam Harris spent a lot of time on in um, at least one of the Waking Up podcasts where he interviewed David um, because he was taken aback by it. And many people have realized that this is a, 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 a I, I don't know that it originated with David, but he's given it the, 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 the best defense. I think other people have hinted at this idea a few times, but no one has taken it quite so seriously and taken it forward. 
So the momentous thing here is that you've only got two possibilities. Either something is impossible because the laws of nature say it's impossible for some reason. Example, faster than light communication. Or it's possible, given the right knowledge. So when in the beginning of infinity, and when I'm talking about the beginning of infinity broadly, and I make weird claims, seemingly strange claims like the transformation of the Andromeda galaxy, this entire galaxy 2.2 million light years away, made up of hundreds of billions of stars, to radically transform that galaxy, that could be done by human beings. We could turn it into a galactic-sized city. Maybe at some point it will be, some millions of years from now. I could be surprised, it could be thousands of years. That might seem science fiction, and for now it is. However, we cannot say it's impossible, because there's no law of physics saying that turning or converting the Andromeda galaxy into a fully-fledged galactic-sized city is impossible. Anything that's not forbidden by the laws of physics is possible given the right knowledge. It's remarkable. So, things are impossible because of the laws of nature, or they're achievable given the right knowledge. And David writes, that momentous dichotomy exists because if there were transformations that technology could never achieve, regardless of what knowledge was brought to bear, then this fact would itself be a testable regularity in nature. But all regularities in nature have explanations. So the explanation of that regularity would itself be a law of nature, or a consequence of one. And so, again, everything that is not forbidden by the laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. This fundamental connection between explanatory knowledge and technology is why the Haldane-Dawkins queerer-than-we-can-suppose argument is mistaken and why the reach of human adaptations does have a different character from that of all other adaptations in the biosphere. The ability to create and use explanatory knowledge gives people a power to transform nature which is ultimately not limited by parochial factors, as all other adaptations are, but only by universal laws. This is the cosmic significance of explanatory knowledge, and hence of people whom I shall henceforward define as entities that can create explanatory knowledge. Wow, so that, um, that is an extremely dense paragraph. There is a lot of stuff there happening. So this idea that the universe is queerer than we can suppose, that there are things out there that are inexplicable, in other words, there are things that we cannot do. This is not possible. It's not possible because of the simple dichotomy that David gave to us. Either things are impossible because they're forbidden by the laws of nature, or they're achievable given the right knowledge. There cannot be a third option. There cannot be this thing that's out there that cannot possibly be done, despite the fact it's permitted, and we do have the knowledge. Moreover, I would emphasize again that we have a proof that whatever is physically possible is computable, and our computers can compute anything that's physically possible. In other words, anything that happens, anything that happens in physical reality, anything that happens in physical reality is being governed by laws of physics. So if there's something out there that you think is incomprehensible, then that thing that's incomprehensible is governed by laws of physics. But the laws of physics are computable, as proved by David Deutsch. If they're computable, 
That means we can write a code for a computer to simulate those laws of physics. Now this is where Martin Rees jumps in and says, but just because you can compute it doesn't mean you can comprehend it. And this is a misunderstanding of what it would take to compute something. What it takes to compute something is to write an algorithm. If you can write down an algorithm, that means that you've understood something with sufficient accuracy in order to capture it in a list of instructions which can then be coded in a computer language and put into a computer. Computing something is comprehending it for a person. Those two things are synonyms. They're not different. For a person, for a human. Obviously, for a computer, if a computer is doing the computation, it's not comprehending anything. And the reason it's not comprehending anything is for the reasons that were just read out, namely, that a computer is not a person. It's not a universal explainer. It's not creating knowledge. There's a lot going on here. So again, we will just say, so again, I should emphasize that we have here an explanation of what people are. Well, it's a definition, but I, I think it's, it's a bit deeper than that. It's an explanation of what people are. There is this thing called explanatory knowledge. Explanatory knowledge tells us what's going on in the world. It's an account of what's going on in the world. There's only one entity that we know of in the entire universe that is able to create explanatory knowledge. And that one entity in the universe are human beings. But presumably all intelligent aliens that are out there, no, it has to be the case that all intelligent aliens out there will similarly be able to explain their world. If you can explain your world, then you are universal in the capacity to do so for the reasons that we just said. Either a thing can be explained and be computed or it cannot be. And someone's just started mowing their lawn outside, so I'm gonna move for a third time. Okay, so yet another experiment outside once more. There's a, um, beside a lovely lake again, small waves coming in, so hopefully it's not too distracting. I probably won't read for much longer anyway. Okay, so we're just at the point where David provides the definition, which I regard as an explanation of what a person is. A person is an entity that can create explanatory knowledge. This is phenomenal and far-reaching, and it's changed my view um, deeply on a whole bunch of issues. It resolves a bunch of problems. I think it currently, in the present intellectual zeitgeist of the West, really does go a long way to addressing a bunch of issues associated with the pursuit of artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence, in particular general intelligence, of course. But it separates out, qualitatively speaking, the difference between artificial general intelligence, which is a kind of person, from artificial intelligence, which I compare simply to a toaster. It's something that operates by following a set of instructions 
without any creativity whatsoever. I don't think there are divisions between those two. I think it's a black and white categorical difference. I don't think you can have a little bit of capacity to create explanatory knowledge. I think it's an all or nothing thing. And it seems like the wind has picked up again. The universe doesn't have it in for us, but sometimes I wonder.